Well, it's good to have you here. We're finishing up the end of the first chapter of the book of Luke. And now, really anticipating chapter two, I'm out of sync with the Advent calendar. <laughs> I hope to look at the birth of Christ this morning. <clears throat> I know it's not Christmas, but that's not how we're geared to study the book <laughs> this, this time around. But at the end of chapter one, you remember we had the great prophecy of Zechariah's uh, song, if you will, thanking the Lord for all that he'd done. Some of the things he mentioned were the fulfillment of the covenant with David, and we have testimony to that in, in uh, the example of Mary and her song, her Magnificat. We also, he also gives thanks for fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. This is no small thing. Uh, some people who read through the Bible on a regular basis, you know, this is January. They would have started back in Abraham, uh, to see Abraham back in the book of Genesis. It is so full to see all that was there. And then you run up here and see how God was true to his, to his word. He fulfilled those things he said to Abraham, to David, and the prophets who proclaim these things are proclaiming, look, it's happening. And Zechariah finally has an awareness of this. And it comes out in the words that he uh, finishes up chapter one with. And he uh, gives praise for the new covenant in verses 76 to 79. And gives a possible message of the son of God. Especially he talks about the forgiveness of sins, the mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Some people say that's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. You could go that far. I won't spiritualize it that much. It could be. But the idea is that the sun is coming up. This is a new day. This is the day of promise. This is the coming of the Messiah. And, and the Lord gave him that inspiration, I'm sure. And so he finishes up with that great praise there. The son of righteousness, Malachi had said, shall rise with healing in its wings. That's what we're talking about here. The son of righteousness, Jesus Christ. And, and salvation is coming. This is what this man had been praying for. I hope you give great praise to God when he answers your prayers. We ought not to overlook that. We don't just come here on Wednesday to methodically do something and then walk away from it, do we? I mean, you might keep a prayer book. Some people do that. You pray for certain things, you put down the answers when they come. We need to praise him when he does answer us. And that's what's happening here in the person of Zechariah. What an example. Well, then we get to verse 80, the last verse of this long chapter. <clears throat> and here's the words we read. All of this praise given here around the birth of John. And we read, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Verse 80 is like a postscript. This is the end of the letter, the end of this great proclamation. And now we have verse 80. It is not a throwaway verse, friends. <laughs> read to yourself again. What do you see there? What do you see in those words? Just think, 
The child grew and became strong in spirit. Remind you of anything? Yeah. The same words are going to be said, or very similar words, about Christ a little bit later. How he grew, became strong in the Lord. What else do you read there? Beg your pardon? Yes. What about that? Good morning. (laughs) Well, that's not just the place that John was, although that's important. You remember anybody else like that? Pardon? Yes, I'm sorry. It's my problem, not yours. I can't hear. (laughs) And does this not relate to Moses also when he was in the wilderness? Yes, a lot. And the other one that I often think of is the prophet Elijah who was in the wilderness. It is an isolated place. It is away from the crowds, if you will. It is away from civilization, if you will. You're getting alone. You know, people do this sometimes. They go off on a retreat somewhere. It's a good thing to do. You, all the clamor of everyday life is put aside. Well, in this case, it's 30 years of preparation for a very short but very important ministry. And John is there until he was there for the first 30 years of his life until his public appearance. Then he begins his public ministry. What a time it was. In the desert, it's a place of training. Somebody brought up Moses. He had uh, 40 years of that. Uh, The best way to describe it is tending his father-in-law's sheep on the backside of the mountain. But it was an experience like this. It was training for what was to come. This is reminiscent of Elijah. This was his call. This is what he was called to do, John. In chapter 3, verse 2, we read about this man. He was there during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The word of God came to him there. It was an important preparation. And then the book is written there uh, that describes what's going to happen. The voice of one crying in the wilderness with this message of salvation. It was an important thought. It was a big thing. Here he is dressed in prophetic chic, you know, that outer garment with the leather bucket and leather belt and buckle and sandals trudging about, eating locusts al fresco there in the garden, followed up with a dessert of honey right from the honeycomb. What a life, what a life. But this is what he was called to. (laughs) There's no indication throughout the life of John that there's any complaint about this. Never. Rather, he's the opposite. This is a big thing. John is the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament prophet, if you will. Bringing these stories together, the promise of salvation and now the fulfillment of it in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you have liked to live a life like that? Not necessarily living in the wilderness, but seeing this, would we have had the eyes to see that this is what was happening? So often the disciples didn't. I mean, even at the Last Supper, even at the Garden of Gethsemane, they still needed eyes to see 
What a blessing that Zechariah could see and John saw his entire ministry, what this was all about. Uh, do we, do we see what this life is all about as believers? I trust we'll look. <laughs> he was like Elisha, I believe I said that. <laughs> Give me an example. In 2 Kings, this was written about that prophet. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. He didn't walk down any runway <laughs> on the day that the new uh, fall fashions came out. He was dressed for what he was called to do. Perhaps it's a protest against uh, materialism. I don't know. But what it is, is an example of someone who's dedicated in a simple way to the call on his life. What a call. Look at the, some of the things, the qualities about John the Baptist. If you will, he had great courage. Again, I want to go to chapter 3 here in the book of Luke. He said, therefore, to the crowd that came out to be, to be baptized by him. Now, this is, sounds like Jesus a little later. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I don't know if I've heard any other evangelist use words like that. I don't think I've ever heard Billy Graham or anybody else I heard over my lifetime. What courage. He wasn't being arrogant, I don't believe. He wasn't being nasty. He's speaking the truth. You brood of vipers. Wow. If anybody points out your sin, how does it affect you? Are you cut to the quick, as they say? Or do you rise up? It took courage. That's what John had. He had humility, too. Again, in chapter 3, and you know these words. I think I brought them up before. Chapter 3, verses uh, 27. Uh, no, that's not it. I'm sorry. Got the wrong verses there. But you remember, Christ is passing by, and John points him out. He says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And later, especially when there's quarreling about whose disciples are whose, what matter does it make? He says about Christ, he must increase, but I must decrease. What minister do we know? What evangelist do we know that would be willing to say that? Uh, I'll give this up if that's the call of God. Because Christ is the preeminent one. What humility he had. Listen, can you imagine? This is what he was called to do. Look at what we've looked at in chapter one about his call. Angels came to announce the birth of John. His mother had a miraculous pregnancy. His father was spoken to by the angel and rebuked and then restored. This would build you up, wouldn't it? I'm such a great person, but not John. What tremendous humility attended his ministry. And... Uh, what great integrity. He always spoke the truth of the word of God. I won't give you an example from the scripture right here, but think about that. He's always spoke the truth. He didn't sugarcoat it, you brood of vipers. <laughs> That's not patting him on the back, is it? Always full of integrity. Someone has said, to be persuasive, we must be believed. To be believable, we must be credible. To be credible, we must be truthful. That fits John. He was credible. He was truthful. And he spoke the truth with great bravery at the cost of his life. The, 
might have been similar words he spoke to the uh, the ruler who had his head chopped off later. We don't know. He did point out his sin. Some would have said preaching is the art of making a preacher and delivering that. That's what scripture is doing here. John was made to be a preacher. Look at this. Look at him. Look at his message. That's a great message. The example of John uh, in a lesser way. That was the sermon we heard yesterday, wasn't it? <laughs> About the life of our friend, Dr. McGoldrick. He was definitely credible. He was a preacher. He was believable. Well, beyond that, he had courage, humility, integrity, but he had passion. It said in another place that he wept. He wept over the people. He was compassionate about them. <laughs> there, somebody estimated that he may have preached in the short ministry he had to 300,000 people over the course of that ministry. Wow. You know, we don't examine the life of John the Baptist enough to give credit to God, to be sure. But what a ministry. And he wept over these people when he uh, was preaching to them and afterwards. And then think of his message. He had a great message. That's what made him a great preacher. What was his message? Sin, repentance. You brood of vipers. You know, but you need to come. You need to believe and be baptized. What a message that was. Like I said, verse 80 is not a throwaway verse. Think about it and think about the person it's talking about. That is John the Baptist. Any questions or comments before we close out chapter one? Yes, sir. Zechariah was a, uh, a priest. So John grew up in a pretty nice house, nice environment. Yes. I'm sure he saw a lot of other priests there and he thought he was in the wilderness. I bet it had an effect on him. Probably so. Yeah, that's a good point. How many of you, have you ever thought about the people who might have affected you in your life to bring you where you are in Christianity? It's a good exercise. It humbles you. <laughs> I wasn't just chopped out of a stone, set up here, and I'm now this great Christian. There's a lot of things that went into making us believers. And uh, that's a good point, Roger. Thank you. Well, a little late perhaps, but we've come to chapter two, the birth of Jesus Christ. Chapter two, let me read the first seven verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Birthdays are usually happy times, aren't they? Uh, I can't tell you how much uh, the lady I'm married to puts into celebrating our grandchildren's birthdays. <laughs> and maybe you grandparents do the same. And it's so happy for them. They're so glad that we remember them. And uh, other people are like that too. Some people, when they get older, 
I don't know if you were blessed to be at the 100th birthday party for Henry Montgomery. What a blessed time that was. And he was, <laughs> I think he had a highlight that day to his life. All these people remember, here he was. Uh, I remember him saying one time, uh, I don't know why I'm still here as he got up there. I don't know why. Well, it, he blessed everybody you could sell by the number of people that came. When we get older, sometimes it's good. And it's great when people remember, maybe not the exact number of years, but hey, it's your birthday. It's important enough that it's put in the uh, West End Herald once a month, isn't it? So we can greet one another, remember each other's birthday. If you're wise as a married person, you'll have even etched in your arm the date of your wife's birthday <laughs> so you don't forget it. My wife keeps a calendar at home. We have everybody's birthday on there that we need to know. People uh, are glad when you remember. And we cherish them, don't we? That's why we're remembering these people's birthdays. We cherish them. As, like I said, the older we get, the more we seem to appreciate that. Uh, even unsafe people cherish those days, don't they? We've just come past the Christmas season. How many unsafe people did you see celebrating? They might not have looked at it as the birth of Christ, but that's what the, the season is about. That's how it started. How many people celebrated it? You know, for two months, you couldn't watch anything but a Christmas movie on the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> it is celebrated. We remember this. We, I trust, remember it because of the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking at here. What a time this was. In these seven verses, all that Zechariah was talking about, all that was prophesied in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah is taking place. This is, and I use this word uh, advisedly, but deliberately, this is the incarnation. God has become man. Wow. Wow. This is the fullness of time. Galatians 4, we read this. But when the fullness of time had come, God, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What a time that is. I hope we cherish that, not just because we had a great season, we exchanged gifts and all the gaiety that goes on with celebrating feasts, good times with friends and relatives, but God is incarnate. Jesus has come. This is what's taking place here. Well, quickly, I want to point out, I don't know any significance in this, but in the way that Luke records it in his inimical way, he makes a downward progression here with the characters that are, in, that are involved. He starts with Caesar Augustus. Who's that? Beg your pardon? Yes. He was the emperor of Rome. It was the time of Caesar Augustus. He was the most important political figure of this day, not localized, but on the whole of the Roman Empire. He uh, was, came to the world as Gaius Octavius, but he became the first Caesar, and his name was changed to Caesar Augustus. 
He was the political figure of the time. He lived about from 63 BC to 14 AD. He was revered as the first emperor. There were places he went when he was called a god. And sadly, he did not shun that at all. But he liked that. He built that up. He did some great things. He put down a number of insurrections. There were a number of civil wars with the death of Julius Caesar. I won't get into all that. If anybody here has studied Shakespeare, you could give this to us later, all of this taking place. But he settled things down after the civil wars. He was the architect of the Pax Romana, a, hit, a time of peace. Uh, sadly, somebody has described it as a Hitler-like peace. You know, you, everything's calm as long as you shut up and keep your place kind of thing. But there was a peace, and that was important. That contributed to the fullness of time. He also was instrumental there in Rome to help build the roads that helped to spread the gospel. They had a common language, and they had a lot of common customs and good roads. It was everything coming together here under Caesar Augustus. Well, then we get to Quirinius, who's the governor. He's a little bit lower than the emperor here, but he was a leader of the state or this particular territory. And it says when he was governor, uh, there was this registration. People are gonna be moved to go and register. Part of that was a census just to see where everybody was. For Rome, that would have been important to know, for instance, where the Jews were, and other people, tribes that they had conquered. But it was also for tax purposes. Hello, <laughs> nothing's changed. Everything old is new again, or everything new is old, whatever. Uh, we live through the same thing. He was over this state-like territory uh, in Syria. And first of all, he's just north of Judea. He was in a well-known territory here. Uh, he's only, as it were, governor, a little bit less than our our uh, emperor here, but he was there and he was behind what was going on here from Rome to him. And then we come down to verse four. Joseph also went up from Galilee. We've moved from the emperor to the governor and now Joseph. Who is Joseph? He's a male Jew. That means something, but not as much perhaps in the minds of Rome as it would to us but he was a descendant of David, the royal family. He was a descendant of that line and he was coming to Bethlehem for that reason. This is where my lineage is. I'm coming here to register. And he is a young man, a poor man. He is, if you will, overcome by Rome. I mean, you still are kowtowing to them in some measure. And he's insignificant to Rome except as a number. He's not very important, perhaps, to other Jews. We don't know. Well, then we go down another step, and we come in verse 5 to Mary. We come to her, and it says of her, uh, <coughs> as soon as I can read, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Her attachment is to Joseph. She's betrothed to him, and she may even been married to him by the time they come to Bethlehem. This is some time from when she first found out she was to be delivering Jesus. She is less significant to Joseph in people's minds and in society's minds. Oh, she's the wife. And she might not have even had to go to register. She might have been able to do it through Joseph. But he's a good man. 
I believe, I'm reading into it here, I admit, sanctified imagination. <laughs> He's a good husband who's not going to let his wife at home by herself when she's about to be delivering a baby. And as difficult as the journey is, he took her with him. And verse 5, she is with child. We've gotten down to the smallest person involved in this story, but not really, is it? She's with child. She's with the child. The story drops down there, but then it flips, if you will. We flip the script because this isn't just any ordinary birth. And I'm not trying to belittle any, any of you who've given birth to children. <laughs> None of them are little, are they? Not at all. And uh, it's a great thing to be there and see that new life come. But this was the promised Messiah. Uh, we've come all the way down to him. The son of God, the Lord of glory. What a, what a cast this is here. This points us to some of the paradoxes and the incongruities of this story. Very, very interesting to see these things and we ought to take note of them. Just think of the uh, paradox of Mary herself. Who is she? Okay, this is a test on chapter one. <laughs> Who is she? She's a poor, single Jewish woman or young lady, probably in her teens, who is pregnant out of wedlock. The community knows about it. Her husband sought to put her away quietly, as, as it were, but an angel spoke to him and said, no, do not be afraid to take her as your wife. What a paradox this is. It's, it's an incongruity here. What's going on? This woman who's pregnant, what, what good's coming out of this? But we don't read anything in Luke's account of any crude or snide remarks about this. He states the facts, like Dragnet, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, and goes on to tell us more about what's happening here. But the facts are very, very important. Look how God deals. This is, what a paradox this is. This isn't how we would treat a king, is it? And other celebrities we sometimes treat way beyond we give them much more than they deserve truly by their life and reputation. Rather, there's an aura of holiness in this situation, contrary to what it looks like. And we need to remember that. God is not bound by senses such as we are. If I can't see it, feel it, touch it, hear it, you know, I don't believe it. We can't do that here. This is one of the incongruous ways that God works. Second, look at the joy here in what should have been a tragedy. This was a time when Mary could have been accused of fornication. When Joseph or some other man could have been accused of having relations with her before they were married. She and he thought to put her out by way of divorce, but quiet, quietly. That could have taken place. It didn't. And somehow, there wasn't a big clamor from the Jewish community to do something to her over this matter. Somehow being, of course, how God works in his wisdom here. This is a wonderful thing. In the Old Testament, she could have been stoned for this. But God in his mercy is 
As I said, flipping the script, it's not going to be like that. Well, there's another thing here we ought, to, ought not to overlook. God is overshadowing this entire story. Why at this time in history does the first emperor of Rome, along with Quirinius, the governor, decide that there's going to be this process taken and all of you will return to your hometown and register and be taxed? Why? Because it was God's time, the fullness of time, Galatians says, to bring forth his son. God is overshadowing this. You know, before we give up hope in our country's situation, uh, all those seedy folks that sit in Washington are still in the hand of God. This man, this Caesar, and this governor are in God's hands. He's overshadowing this entire situation. Mary goes off to celebrate what's going on here before they come to Bethlehem. She goes off to celebrate with her cousin, Elizabeth. Man, you see God's at work here. And I, I, you can imagine the, the conversation they had. Wow, you can't believe what's happened to me, Elizabeth. Oh yeah, let me tell you what's going on here <laughs> in our town. God is overseeing over, uh, all this. Think of it, Elizabeth blesses Mary when she comes. And Mary gives out a song of praise that is recorded here in scripture that's called the Magnificat. Where does this come from? In a situation like this, this comes from God being in charge. Well, then think too of the irony of all this. About to give birth to a child in the stable, Mary is going to deliver the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Wow. Is God not in this? What's going on here? God's at work. It's his time to show you and me the Messiah the way of salvation. Caesar Augustus has been moved to tax the people, conduct a census, and God leads this to a fulfillment of prophecy. Wow. There are some people who just, just can't believe this. This is a fulfillment of Micah 5 two. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who's to be ruler in Israel. That's what the prophet Micah wrote. They go to Bethlehem. You know the name of Bethlehem, what it means? House of bread. And the one who is called the bread of life is going to be born here. The bread of life. Mary doesn't carry a Caesar but she carries a man who is God in the flesh. Wow. You see the workings, the secret workings sometimes of God's providence. You know, we look back on this now, we ought not to take it too lightly. We ought to really contemplate this. What God is at work doing here in secret ways that we're not aware of. In the empire of Rome at that time probably covered about 3.3 million square miles and had a population of between 70 to 100 million people. 
And Joseph and Mary did not have Google Maps, but they made it to Bethlehem, that little place, and gave birth to the Son of God, a stable in Bethlehem. A simple Jewish boy is going to be delivered and he's going to bring salvation. You see, and we ought to remember this, the Roman emperor serves God, doesn't he? You think of the many people that have done that in the Old Testament. Think of the many people that not willingly, but they served God. You think of Pharaoh when Moses led his people out of Egypt. He was used by God to bring about his honor and glory and to get rid of that particular enemy of his people. Geographically, Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem, but the real focus is in verse four. Look back to that, if you will. Joseph went, also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David. That's important. Which is called Bethlehem because he was the house and lineage of David. This is important. This is prophetic fulfillment here. The line of David, the greater son of David that was talked about way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 has arrived. God is true to his word and he's fulfilling it here in their very presence. 2 Samuel, we read, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. You shall, <coughs> your throne shall be established forever. Samuel said that to David six or 700 years before this. This place, this time brings us to the advent of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Well, look at the sad situation of this. He comes there. That's great. That's wonderful news. But guess what? There's no room at the end for them. This is a very interesting thing if you study it. Uh, this uh, in here, why is this filled? Why? Well, we just read about it. There's this registration going on. They weren't the only people that came here to do this. And guess who else is there? <laughs> guess who else is there? It's like over on University Ridge when you go to pay your car taxes, you know, or something. There are tax collectors there. There are Roman soldiers there to make sure all this gets done right. No wonder the town is swelling up with people. No wonder there's no place to, to lodge. But the child has to be delivered. It's that time they've come here. Welcome to the Bethlehem hospital system, Mary. Here's how we handle things here. We do not have all the antiseptic that you might want. There is not the noise of clanging medical instruments as you enter the delivery room. There's not a doctor to receive your child. There's not a nurse that he passes the child off to to be weighed and cleaned up and given back to you at your breast. There's not a warmed up receiving blanket. No, welcome to Bethlehem. There's gonna be the stench here that you may not have met. You're gonna have the smell of animals and their excrement. You're gonna have stale and sometimes wet hay as your bed here. Your attendant is gonna be your hopefully adroit husband. Maybe there was another Jewish lady there with her. There's not gonna be all of this 
You're not going to have antiseptic to rub off this child and clean up the afterbirth. We're going to give you these claws that you're probably going to tear and soak in some water, if you can find it here, maybe from the bucket that the animals drink from, and wash this child off. Welcome to the Bethlehem Hospital System. They hadn't obviously heard that Jesus was coming, had they? <laughs> Things would have been prepared a little different. But there was no room for them. There was no room for them. There were no rooms in the homes of the high and the mighty. We don't hear anything about Caesar Augustus coming to take care of this child, do we? We don't have, hear anything about the governor, Quirinius, here offering a place for them. Oh, my. Jesus is coming? Come on, I got a room for you. Maybe if you have to move a child out for the night to sleep on the floor, we'll find a place for you. The place itself, the stable, could have been a cave in the wall. We're not sure. <laughs> but it was a crude place. Some people described it as a, uh, a building that would have been enclosed with stalls all around and a center area that was a common area for feeding the animals and taking care of them. <clears throat> and then over it, there would have been rooms for some people to stay who brought their animals there. But whatever the structure was, it was not the Holiday Inn. It wasn't even Motel 6. It was a stable. It was a hole in the wall, perhaps a cave. And it's here, <coughs> excuse me, that God is manifest in the flesh. Do you see the depravity of sin in this situation? This is the world into which Jesus came. This is the physical world. Think of the physical world he came into, the depravity of our time even, and not just our time. There was great depravity in Rome at this time. And here, God is manifest in the flesh. The Savior is unrecognized and, if you will, unwelcomed. There's no great party. There's no great birthday party for this, the deliverance here. There's no, uh, uh, what do you, a baby shower. None of that's taken place here. But the Son of Man has come. He has come. Somebody once wrote, Prophet Isaiah, if you will, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand talking about Jesus Christ and who he was and coming. These, if you will, dumb animals know certain things. They know where they get fed. They know their master. But we don't know the king of kings and the Lord of lords. My, my question to you and to me is, do we have room for him? Do we? I mean, I don't mean the room in your lovely house. Do you have room for him in your life? He's come. Don't miss this fact about what's going on here. We're talking about the king of kings, but don't miss the fact of his humanity. This is very important. It's important for our Christianity. Christ came in the flesh. He was born, delivered by a woman of earth. He became one of us when he did this. Don't miss that. Why is that important? Why? Why? Beg pardon? So he could die. Yes. He could die the death of sinners. He was born like we were. Mary actually held this baby, her child. What an experience this was. She held 
a real human being, nursed him and reared him. What an experience. Married less than nine months and she's holding the son of God. I tell you, uh, ladies, I bet she had friends to talk to for eons. <laughs> Mary, what was it like? Tell me, tell me. Maybe the first thing she said, well, you can't believe Bethlehem at that time of year. You just don't want to go. <laughs> Joseph never knew her in, in humanity. Never knew her and she was delivering a child, a human being. He has been, he has embarked here on that part of his ministry that we call his humiliation. You think of that. My father-in-law used to love to sing that song. I don't think we have it in our hymnal. Out of the ivory palaces. I don't know the words to it. But isn't that what's going on here? He has left that to come to earth. The humanity of it. This is the beginning. And I think I'll stop here for today. This is the, the beginning of what we call his humiliation. Just take that and consider that this week. Contemplate that. How Jesus gave up heaven to come and be born. The beginning of his great humiliation. Well, of course, we know where that led to. His great exaltation. Thank God it did. Let me pray as we end. Thank you, Father, for your word and what we see here today. Father, we thank you that it is an everlasting word from you. May it feed our souls to the end that we would live for you and give you honor and glory. Bless our worship to follow, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.